Sun Saraswati Namaha. Namaste. And tonight we're going to begin chapter 8 of the Devi Gita. It's on page 166. And the goddess said, And thus, by the various practices of yoga, unite the soul in meditation on me, the form of the supreme divinity. O king, devotees should become free from all afflictions and sitting in a yogic posture <clears throat> should become fully present. It is manifest in union, moving in secret, whose name is a great word. It is manifest in union. It is a great secret. It's hidden deeply inside. It's extremely mystical, means it's not intellectually understandable. Whose name is a great word, its name is Sabda Brahman, the name of God. That's a pretty great word you got there. All that is, all manifested existence, and all life attains liberation in it. It is the true of the true for all beings born, higher than the highest, the most excellent knowledge for all that lives. It is brilliant, most minute amongst the small, and with it the worlds have been fixed as well as their leaders. It is the imperishable Brahma, the supreme divinity. It is life. It is speech and mind. It, and only it, is truth and the nectar of immortality. It alone is the beautifully pure knowledge. In the bow placed the arrow of Upanishad, the understanding. You're taking aim with your sankalpa and you're focusing your attention on your laksha, the goal. <laughs> and the great weapon to come close to the vicinity of union, you gotta, you have to have a sankalpa and a goal and your attentiveness to, the, to your mark, to your, what you aim for, your target. I am that. With an attitude of intuition, direct consciousness to the goal, only that beautiful, imperishable knowledge. Pranav Om is the bow. The soul is the arrow, and supreme divinity is the target or goal. By means of full attention, the knowledgeable one will cause the arrow to strike that target whereupon he becomes me. Here, heaven, earth, and the atmosphere have their being, along with the mind of all that lives. It is the only one, the soul of all beings born, and no other. Paramatma, the supreme soul, the totality of all the individual souls. 
Leave all words. Take this bridge to the nectar of immortality. Just as the spokes are attached to the hub of a wheel, in the same way all the nadis, the subtle and gross channels of circulation, are fastened in the one. It moves within the interior as diverse, victorious thoughts. Meditate on the soul by means of OM, which will grant prosperity in rejecting darkness. <clears throat> darkness, I reject you. Ignorance, I reject you. Fear, I reject you. In the light of the fire burning in the city of supreme divinity. This is the city of supreme divinity. The soul is completely established. Mind manifests as the life force and is established in the matter of the body, the most gross envelope of the supreme spirit, the Anamaya Kosha. This is the envelope, the consistency of matter. So mind is the life force within this envelope of matter, gathering together in the heart. By means of that knowledge, the perceivers see beyond to the form of supreme bliss, to the nectar of immortality, to that shining light. Cleaving the bonds of the heart and cutting the knots of all doubts with the destruction of these bonds of all activity, one is able to perceive the highest blessing. The heart, highest blessing is to release ourselves from all bondage, both in the mind and in the heart. And cutting the bounds of all doubts, and one then is able to perceive the highest blessing. The golden manifestation, the cosmic egg of existence, is the ultimate sheath which resides without attributes with the supreme divinity. So we're calling this Hiranyagarbal or Hiranyamoya, the manifestation of the golden egg or the golden existence is Satchit Ananda. Anamai, Pranamai, Manamai, Vijanamai, Anandamai, Satchit Ananda. So this golden manifestation is the ultimate sheath, this Satchit Ananda, which resides without attributes. It's near Guna Brahman. It has no upadi, it has no kala, it has no attributes, it has no attitude, it has no qualities, it has no characteristics. It's just radiant light. That radiant light of all lights, that soul is known by the wise. There is not the light of the sun, nor the moon, nor the stars. Neither does lightning shine there, nor fire. There only shines the light of all light, that is, the light which illuminates all this existence of every other light. There's just the light of Satchit Ananda. No duality, no sun, no moon, no fire, no lightning. 
There's just the one light. No duality. Brahma, the supreme divinity, is verily this nectar of immortality. In front is Brahma, behind is Brahma, in the south and in the north, below and above, this universe issued forth from the blessing of the chosen deity. Who perceives this with an attitude of intensity, a real bow. You've got this intensity of reality. It's really real to me. He accomplishes his objectives and becomes a man of excellence. He becomes the supreme divinity with a contented soul with neither grief nor desires. From remembering a second, fear arises in duality. When you have duality, there's a, I'm thinking about oh, not only Aham Brahmashmi, but now there's this Dhaityabad, this duality. He's Adhaitya. He's only one in unity. When remembering a second, fear arises because you're in this Dhaityabad and you have to seek Adhaityananda, the bliss of non-duality. Without a second, there can be no fear. There is not a second beyond me. And neither can one be disunited from me, nor can I be disunited from him. How can we be separated? There's no severance. We are one. We are adud. I am only he. Also, he is only I. With a certainty, this is known, O mountain. Where I am perceived, there my Gani, the knower of wisdom, is situated. If anybody sees me, there my Gani, my Bhakta, the one who is illuminated with devotion, devotion to knowledge of me, he's present wherever I am. Neither do I reside in any sacred place of pilgrimage, except the Devi Mandir, <laughs> nor in Kailash, the home of Lord Shiva, nor in Boykunta, the home of Lord Vishnu, nor any such place. No, no, no. But I dwell in the middle of the lotus of the heart of my Gani. Whoever knows me and understands me and can experience me and can explain me, I dwell in that heart. That's my place of pilgrimage. If you want to take a pilgrimage to find the Divine Mother, look in the heart of a Gani. Someone who really has wisdom, who really has the bhava, who's got the juice. Ten million times the fruit of my worship is received by him who makes offerings to my Gani. His family becomes pure and his mother attains the fruition of karma. The universe becomes clothed with merit when you bow with respect to one whose consciousness is absorbed in the wisdom of supreme divinity almost true among mountains. 
If you bow down to Srima, you'll get 10 million times the fruit of doing the worship to my Murti. Because in her heart is situated the wisdom of the Divine Mother. All has been explained by me and there remains nothing left to be spoken. <laughs> This may be conveyed to the oldest son who is filled with devotion and the repository of good qualities, to disciples and others who are suitable, but it is not to be imparted to any others who are not. Give this knowledge with discrimination as to who is an appropriate recipient. To those who have the highest devotion for the gods and equally for the guru, just as for the gods. To such as these should the meanings be explained, so the great souls have declared. Who imparts this instruction to, is to be regarded even as the supreme <laughs> lord of all. So anybody who can teach us this highest wisdom and the path to attain this highest wisdom is to be regarded as the supreme soul of all. She is the supreme Lord. She, it's even more important to get her darshan than it is to get Ishwara's darshan. Because seeing Ishwara, we get inspired, but seeing Srima, we get inspiration with instruction. And she says, sit down here and put the flowers here and say this mantra and chant this way and sing this way and sit this way and breathe this way. And she gives us instruction how we too can make the journey. So it's more important to find a Gani and follow her example than it is even to have a vision of God. Who has received the benefits of this excellent action, this instruction, has no capacity to be free from debt. Lifetime after lifetime after lifetime, we will be indebted to she who gives us this wisdom. Never do we want to be free from the debt. We don't even want to pay it off. Just keep making payments for the rest of our lifetime after lifetime because we bind ourselves to her and to her karma and we come closer and closer and closer to exemplifying that karma in our own lives. The more we stay with her and the more we make payments on that instruction, the more we take the load, the burden of worldly interaction away from her, the greater is our capacity to watch what she'll do when she's free from these worldly necessities. And that's why we want to do seva to the guru who imparts this instruction. Because if we take over her worldly duties, she's free to go and ascend to the other worlds. And we are privileged to watch. And what she was doing in this world to become what she became, we get to take over and do it ourselves. Now that's win-win negotiation. That is really an opportunity. It is said 
that a greater authority resides with a father who has bestowed birth in Brahma, in divinity. So even you look at your own dad, and I think the next verse will explain it, but the, you look at your own dad, he gave birth to your body. But you look at your own guru, and he gave birth to our souls. The father who gives birth to a body, his gift will be destroyed. You're going to change bodies. I mean, at some time or other, it's got to go. It's going to get a little bit old and a little bit creaky and a little bit freaky. And then it'll just kind of deteriorate. And then one day you'll wake up and say, I have the soul of a teenager. Why is my body not cooperating? But the birth in divinity is never destroyed. It goes with you from birth to birth to birth. It's eternal. The wisdom of Brahman is eternal. And the knowledge that your individual soul, the jiva, is one with the paramatma, is eternal that will go with you from circumstance to circumstance, whereas these bodies will at some time become the cause of all kinds of difficulties. Therefore... <laughs> Do not cause harm to him whose speech has caused knowledge. If she gives us wisdom, don't put obstacles in her way. Do everything we can to try to repay the debt, beginning with receiving with an attitude of respect and appreciation. Therefore, in all the conclusions of the scriptures, who imparts the knowledge of Brahma, the supreme knowledge is the highest guru. If Shiva becomes angry, the guru can save. But if the guru becomes angry, Shankar cannot. <laughs> Remember Lomash Muni's disciple became Kakpushundi. He was always talking back to his guru, and one day the Shiva got mad and said, disrespect to the guru is disrespect to Shiva. And I curse you, you'll take 1,000 births in the lowest forms of, of creation imaginable. Lomash Muni bowed down to Shiva and sang that great hymn of praise, and he said, Shiva, please forgive my disciple. And Shiva said, I can't forgive your disciple. His behavior is intolerable. And once I've given a curse, it's going to stay a curse. But because of your devotion, I'm giving a blessing along with the curse. In every <clears throat> manifestation, in every birth that he takes, he will always remember the name of Ram. The guru saved when Shiva was angry, but if the guru is angry, <clears throat> who's going to intercede on our behalf? <laughs> Therefore, sparing no effort, the respected guru should be pleased, O mountain, by body, mind, and speech. Always that is foremost. Otherwise, if a disciple be ungrateful, 
In his lack of gratitude, he destroys what he has accomplished. Pretty clear. When Indra taught Atharvam this wisdom, he took the promise that he would sever his head if he ever imparted it to another. And the Ashwin twins asked to learn from Atharvam. Whereupon he told the winder of the thunderbolt, Indra, would cut his head if he imparted the knowledge. So uh, Atharvan went to Indra and he got the knowledge of the unity of the Jivatma and the Paramatma. And he got the knowledge of the Puja and the Sadhana and the philosophy and all that he needed to make the journey. And then Indra said, Atharvan, if you impart this knowledge to anyone else, I'm going to cut off your head. Atharvan said, <laughs> okay. And then sometime later, the Ashwin twins came to Atharvan. They said, give us the knowledge. <laughs> and Atharvan said, <clears throat> Indra said he'd cut off my head if I give anybody else this knowledge. Why? Why Indra would say that? Uh, what power he has to... Oh, that was Indra's power. He was the, the, uh, the, the commander of the Indriyas. And he didn't want this knowledge imparted indiscriminately. And therefore, listen to the rest of the story. The Ashwins cut the head off themselves, replacing it with another. And they received all the knowledge from that head or that form, that excellent form of divinity. When Indra cut the head which spoke, then again, they affixed his own original head. And then the wise man kept his head. <laughs> Some of us have lost our heads. Uh, you'll excuse us. Uh, thus, great difficulties must be overcome to attain the knowledge of the supreme, O chief among mountains. Whoever obtains it is blessed and attains the effects of his action. This is the fruit of your karma. Uh, this, this is the fruit, the highest fruit that you can achieve, is to listen to the wisdom of unity. Om Sam Saraswati Namaha. Namaste. Thank you. Uh, and that concludes chapter 8. Uh, so we're talking about the, the supreme... Neti neti, we called it it. You'll excuse that convention. But it is not masculine, it's not feminine, it's not neuter, it's... What is it? Not iti, not iti. Uh, we have to go there. Through the processes of yoga, we have to go into the experience and deeply intuit that unity. All that can be spoken is the path to achieving that unity. We can't speak of it as being something. It is not the absence of something. It is not the presence of something. It is divine illumination. Let's see if there are any questions. 
Yes, please. <clears throat> in that story, I'm sure that you know the symbol, the symbology was um, that you have to go through great austerities to to be able to have the the knowledge imparted to you. But I just thought, you know, wouldn't Indra recognize that that's not his head and say something's fishy here? <laughs> oh yes. Uh, but don't get too analytical about the story. I don't think that's the, the, the message that they're trying to give us. Sure. I wanted to ask, it was talking about the sadhana of chanting Om? Yes. Uh, they called Om is the, is the bow. And the soul is the arrow. And you're going to take aim at it as the target with the bow of Om. Now in the Chandi we have the bow is the bow of determination. So the bow symbolizes the sankalpa. The, uh, the sankalpa to attain that laksh. And the soul is in the arrow. We call that one-pointed attentiveness. So we're taking air aim with the, the, the bow of om, our sankalpa. To achieve, the, to, to make the arrow of the soul fly towards the target of unity from the, with the Jivatma and the Paramatma. It's a beautiful image. Mm -hmm. So do we just chant Om? You may, or you can put Om in front of every mantra. Or you can put Om at the end of every mantra. Or you can just chant Om. Or, there's a lot to do. <laughs> there's a, with this understanding, there's a lot that you can do with it. There are many techniques and many practices. Oh, when you do the boot, the shuti, you start from the lower chakras, and you, go, and you start from Om, and you end in Om. So you, every mantra has its birth in Om. The origin and the terminus are one and the same. They come from Om, they conclude in Om, and that is our goal. That is our path. The mantra is in between the Om. om. <laughs> yes, please. We have a question from Nanda in San Jose. <coughs> Namaste, Nanda Ma. If we cannot define it, and we say that it is neti neti, then what is it that we are striving for? What is the goal? Please help me understand. Well, we defined it <coughs> as neti neti, but we are calling it the completion of union, the perfection of union between the jivatma and the paramatma, between the individual soul and the supreme soul. Now, what is that? You'll have to experience it. There are no words there. There are no thoughts there. There are no duality existing there. So how can it be defined or explained? We can talk about the path to reach it. 
but we can't talk about what you're going to feel when you get there. Yes, please. <clears throat> uh, verse 8 uh, re refers to victorious thoughts. What, what is the substance of victorious thoughts? Victorious thoughts are the thoughts that put, put our duality at ease and move us towards unity. So the various diverse victorious thoughts are the good thoughts that take away all of the bad thoughts. We've got to develop a little bit of discrimination. Now, the bad thoughts are assurance that are going to take me back into worldliness. The good thoughts are devas, divine illuminations, which are going to take me towards unity. We are praying for the victory of the devas over the asuras. We are praying for the victorious thoughts uh, to bring us closer to illumination and rather than deeper into worldliness. So that's the, what the meaning of victorious, diverse victorious thoughts are. Yes, please. We have a question from Ramya. Namaste, Rami Mommy. <laughs> you are fast. You are shouting, Rami. Namaste. Is the, is, is, is the presence of duality the daitya, uh, daitya bhavana, or is it having a type of bhavana or, or any thought? So is the presence of duality having a assert bhava, or is it any bhava or any thought is duality? Any thought is duality. Rama, Ramya, some thoughts are bringing us closer to divinity, and they're good thoughts. Like Surat Raj, he had excellent thoughts. And so we wanted to nourish and nurture that excellent thought. He said, oh, well, let's go to the Devi Mandir, and we'll do Seva for Srima, we'll do Puja, we'll do Pater, we'll, we'll listen to Swami Babylon, and this will be good thoughts. And then there were other thoughts that said, uh, here is the world and here is my place in it and these are my responsibilities and these are the obligations which I have assumed. And it's not wrong, but compare the good thoughts with the worldly thoughts. And what is the bliss that we get from the good thoughts? So that's why we define the asuras as the thoughts which bind us to worldliness and the devas, the thoughts that bring us towards illumination. Uh, and this is the distinction. Any thought is a, a, is a daitya. It brings us into duality. There is an I thinker and there is a thought, which is different from me. So all thoughts are, are born in duality. Now of those thoughts, some of them say, well, let's chant the chandi. That's a good thought. <laughs> Some of them say, well, uh, let's go out and, and have a good time. <laughs> and then you get into all kinds of crazy thoughts. What is it that makes me feel like I'm having a good time? <laughs> what would be pleasurable to me? So it, it, the, then it, the thoughts have no end. Rakta Bija takes over. So our challenge is to discriminate between the good thoughts and the not-so-good thoughts. Which thoughts are going to bring me to the vision of the Divine Mother? And which thoughts are going to bind me to worldly interaction? 
Of course, we want to increase, to the extent of our capacity, we want to increase the good thoughts. And we want to dec decrease the worldly thoughts. Yes, we have please. a question from Papia. Namaste, Papia. In verses 14 and 15, is she saying that to perceive Brahma is to become Brahma? Brahma eva Brahma bhavanti. The knower of Brahma becomes Brahma. Uh, who perceives this with an attitude of intensity, he becomes the supreme divinity. Brahma eva Brahma bhavanti. Who alone, he alone who sees, who perceives, who grokks Brahma, he becomes Brahma. Oh, yes, it, this is the path. We become one with the Supreme as soon as we see her. And the reason we become one is because it, when we actually see her, there is no duality, there's no other thought. So there's no I and there's no you. So we become one infinite consciousness. Yes, please. In verse 10, <clears throat> it says, mind manifests as the life force um, it seems to be contradictory to the Manamaya Kosh and the Pranamaya Kosh. No, it's not contradictory. Uh, it, the, the mind, it, it, when we come down, you go from the Manamaya Kosh to the Pranamaya Kosh. So you take all the illuminated thoughts that you brought from Anandamaya Kosh to the Ganamaya Kosh and then the Ganamaya Kosh to the Manamaya Kosh and the Manamaya Kosh to the Pranamaya Kosh and mind manifest as the life force and is established in the Anandamaya Kosh in the batter, in the body of batter or the matter of the body, the most gross gathering together in the heart. So now you've got the ascension and the, the manifestation. You're going both directions. Please, it's all below, below. It's not just a one-way street. And we have to do it consistently. Each time you go in, so also you come out. And thereby we become recycling plants, taking all the negativities out of the world and taking all the positivities from the main, from the supreme soul and breathing a soul, a life force into the creation. Yes, please. Nanda wanted to ask a follow-up question. Certainly. So is the golden the union between the Jivatma and Paramatma? Do I understand correctly? Yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> you said it very, very nicely, Nanda. That is the goal. Now, in order to achieve that supreme goal, there are many little goals along the way that we will use to demarcate our path and to measure our progress and to put us closer and closer and closer to that ultimate goal that we wish to achieve. So we need to make yam, niyam, asan pranayam, and we're going to do all of these different steps to increase the presence of divinity in our lives. We can't just say at this stage of our lives, well, my goal is to have a complete perfect unity between my soul and the supreme soul. Hardy bowl. Give me a break. The journey of a thousand steps uh, or a thousand miles starts with the first step. Now, the first step is I'm going to make a plan to increase divinity in my life. 
my guru told me increase your asan, increase your spiritual practices by five minutes a month. That's totally doable. But then after the first year, I was sitting for an hour, and after the second year, two hours, etc., etc. So in this way, you'll make little goals in order to reach the big goal. That'll be the path that we take. I want to expand my asana. I want to expand my understanding of Sanskrit. I want to understand the philosophy. I want to expand and expand in many directions, in many dimensions at once. And I still have the material question, the material issue to resolve. Every being on this planet must resolve the material issue. That is, how do I make a valuable contribution to the world so that I earn the privilege to go forward in my spiritual exercises? I can't just say, well, world, you take care of me and I'm going to go to God. Because the first rule of being a sadhu is to never allow yourself to become a burden to anyone else. And if you are a sadhu, then you will want to provide for yourself and be able to share something with others as well. So we all have to resolve the material issue while we are making these smaller sankalpas which bring us closer and closer to God. Yes, please. We have a question from Chandana. Namaste, Chandana. How can we understand the story as a metaphor for our own egos? Does severing and changing heads correlate to shifting our egos when imparting knowledge in relation to them? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Chandana, when you give up your ego, then you can impart the knowledge. Otherwise, if you're just giving speeches and lectures and say, look at me, I get to sit on the chair in front of the gods at the altar and, and pontificate and give the, the supreme knowledge to everybody, then it fails to be knowledge. It becomes an expression of ego, and that's not what we're trying to do. That is not the objective, is to have everybody recognize you. The objective is to have everybody recognize her. And if we are successful in drawing attention to the Supreme Goddess, then we have succeeded in our mission. And if we ultimately encourage people to draw attention to ourselves, we have just enhanced the ego, which is even more difficult to get rid of. The ego becomes stronger, we can become more bound, we, can, we lose our capacity. Remember, the first step in the chandi is the removal of the curses. And the chandi was cursed that these mantras are so powerful that if anyone uses them for other purposes other than their intended purposes, that they will fall and fail. And what that means to me, as I understand it, Chandana, is that Chandi is a very powerful tool for surrendering the ego and cutting down the ego. It's a tool for uniting the Jivatma with the Paramatma. And if we use that instead as a tool for my self-aggrandizement, 
for my ego enhancement. So I can raise money. I'm going to do these mantras and you will change your karma because of my mantra. Just make a donation here. If I make it as a, a tool of my livelihood or as a, a, a means of enhancing my authority or my power, then I am relegating myself to a lifetime without God. What a horrible curse. What a horrible curse, because if I abuse my tool, the tundi is a tool for uniting and surrendering the ego and uniting with God. If I abuse my tool and use it for fundraising for me and selfish consideration for me, then what will I use to ex extricate myself from the bonds of detachment to ego? The tool won't work for me. Every time I say the mantra, I'll look at the, the, the donation box. I'll look at the collection plate. I'll pass the basket around. Every time in my mind I say that mantra, it won't work for me because I'm using it as a business tool rather than as its originally intended purpose. Now that's the curse. In the same way, uh, Indra said to Atharvan, if you use this as the tool of your, your self-aggrandizement, and Atharvan uh, became the guru, and uh, we should all recognize you as the guru, uh, it's not going to work for you. Cut off your head, give the knowledge, and then you can have your head back. You can't give that knowledge with ego. That's the meaning of the story. We have a question from Prabhu. Namaste, Prabhu. Namaste, Swami and Ma. When using, uh, when practicing a mantra, um, are the effects of chanting a mantra with bija <coughs> syllables followed by namaha the same as chanting a mantra with the name of the deity in the middle? So, if you chant it just with bija mantras and namaha, does that have a good effect? It has a good effect. Even a better effect is to chant it the way it's written in the book. So if you want to say Om Namaha, Om Namaha, Ring Namaha, Ring Namaha, it's not the same as Om Namah Shivaya, Om Ring Chandikaya Ginnama, Om Ring Sring Gundurgaya Ginnama. These are mantras that come from Shastra and they come from specific scriptures for specific purposes given by specific gurus to specific disciples to, with a totally specific energy. These are authorized mantras. And if you pull off a, a, a mantra from the internet and it says, Sring Namaha, Om Namaha, In Namaha, it's, it's a good thing to do. But it's not the originally intended purpose. There are better methods. Better you take your initiation in mantra from a qualified guru who gives you the initiation with the rishi, the chondo, and the meaning, and the bhavana, and the feeling, and gives you the diksha, which means the intuitive vision that he intuited, conveying the intuitive understanding of the mantra so that you really lose your mind rather than going in at yourself and copying and pasting and, and <clears throat> reciting just like you copied it. Better to take the diksha 
Better to prepare yourself, make yourself a disciple of a qualified guru who can explain to you the meaning and the method of your worship. Yeah, I think you'll get better results, faster results, more deeply intuited results if you do so in that manner. That's how this Dharma was meant to be transmitted. It wasn't meant really to be transmitted through the internet and everybody can copy and paste any mantra and put that into their daily practice. That was not the original intention. Please. We have a question from Elijah in Seattle. Namaste, Elijah Baba. In verse 16 it says, Without a second there can be no fear. Is this saying that when we overcome fear, we transcend, we transcend time and vice versa? Or is that a second, it's a second form from her? There's no second form from her. There is no second form of, uh, of anything. There is no duality. When we are in union, there is only unity. So when we stay in union, we stay in that bhavana. There is no fear because there's no, nothing that could uh, impair me in any way. So uh, uh, because of that uh, unity, we, we escape from all fear. Now it's true that we have, uh, if there's a, a union even in the duality where we trust completely, then we lose our fear as well. So as you move from Bhav Samadhi into Sabi Kalpa Samadhi and then into Nirvi Kalpa Samadhi, you achieve greater and greater states of freedom from fear. We have a question from Papia in Delaware. Namaste, Papia. Again and again, we are told that when someone becomes a Brahma Jnani, his family and his parents become pure and attain the benefits. Can you explain this? Is their karma wiped away? Not completely, but a lot is. Uh, Papia, when you live in the home of a Gani, even if you stay for a few days or a few hours and hang out with Srima, you'll find that there's a grace that is absorbed by everyone in the household. She has a certain rhythm of life. She has a chondo. She has a certain bhavana with which she does everything. She has a certain grace with which she flows through all of the things that she has to do, whether she's cooking or whether she's serving or whether she's writing new songs or whether she's uh, studying scriptures or in every way, there's just a certain grace that attains to the entire family. And it expands when you live there with time. Your, her goals become your goals. And her plan becomes your plan. And you sort of migrate, gravitate. You are like the iron coming towards the chumbuk, the, the, the magnet, which just and then you have to go, you just feel an attraction to, to living with her chondo and living with her bhavana. So she gets up in the morning and she does jap, and then she gets up and she, she does tap, and then she does puja, and then she just makes a little nashta, and then goes to the temple, and then does puja again, and then she comes back and makes a bigger nashta, and then she does more jap, and then you see in her bhavana and in her way of life and her chanda of life and her rhythm of life and what's important to her, her values of life, they, they just 
extend to those who live in her vicinity. Salokya, Samipya, Sarupya, Sadrishya, Sayuch. We have another question from Nanda. Nanda Mom, Namaste. Can you please share your own experiences and stories in chanting the Devi Gita? Thank you. No. <laughs> I had a lot of fun with Devi Gita. It's a magnificent document. You can tell I love it a lot. But I even, in great measure, distilled much of the Tatwagan from Devi Gita. And I understand that Tatwagyan is really an anthology, a sutra, explaining all the steps that we need to remember when, before we even start out on our journey. It's got all the things that we're going to need to know about the one becoming two, and the two becoming three, and the three becoming four, and the four becoming five, and it goes on and on and on until we become one. And that was my experience in Devi Gita. It was a delight to chant. I only chanted Devi Gita alone as a book uh, uh, for a few years. Most of the time I did the Devi Bhagavatam, 18,000 verses. And I do it in seven days. And it was just a blast. <laughs> I mean, there was nothing else going on in my life. Uh, I would get up in the morning and I would do 2,000 verses in an asan. <laughs> and then I would, you know, I, I, that's how we did it. And mom would feed me and I would chant the Devi Bhagavatam all day long. And most, much of the night. And then in the late night, uh, we used to have satsang and, and people would come and we would explain the verses and translate them from... Hey, remember that, Mom? Wasn't that fun? We would uh, translate this into Bengali and into Hindi and into English. And into, uh, we, we had really a blast with it. It was a great satsang. This time did it for morning. He sat down and he get up 7 o'clock evening. <laughs> so beautiful. Yeah, that was really a lot of fun. Oh, but I, 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 of course, when they do the Devi Bhagavatam, you read the De Devi Gita. And, uh, and then I said, this is so powerful and it's so sublime and it's so important. So then I think we better take it as a scripture. It is a scripture, but it was never a popular scripture. Like the Bhagavad Gita came from Mahabharata. Uh, it, the Devi Gita came from uh, the Srimad Devi Bhagavatam, but it, it wasn't popularized like some of the other Gitas were. So then we took a, 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 this excerpt from the Bhagavatam and we published it as a separate book, which it is, but we took it out of the Bhagavatam. Earlier you were saying that knowledge of Brahman is eternal? Yes. So even if you were born again and you forgot that you were enlightened, still that knowledge would exist in you somehow? It always does exist. It exists within you and all you have to do is remember it. You remember Plato's theory of ideals? He said everything conforms to its ideal. And the idea of the ideal is always with you, even if you forget it. Now, uh, have you ever seen perfect equality? Well, actually, no two leaves in the forest are the same. 
They approximate equality, they approach equality, but there's always some subtle difference which distinguishes one from the other. Even if with all of our technical prowess, if we cut two pieces of wood exactly the same length, there'll be some subtle difference between the two. Now, how do you know that they're different? Well, in order to say that these are not perfectly equal, you must have had some experience of perfect equality. Sometime. Now, the argument says that as long as you've had senses, you've never seen perfect equality. You never saw perfect justice or perfect love or perfect surrender. How do you know that this is not perfect? You must have had some experience without the senses. And then you can say that the experience which I am sensorily perceiving at this time is not, not the same experience as I had before. Now since we've had the senses since birth, it means that sometime before we were born, we must have had this experience of perfection either in meditation, either in total intuitive absorption, or in some time when I was in union with the Supreme. Because the Supreme perceives supreme equality all the time. <laughs> I don't. The Atma, Jivatma, does not perceive supreme equality all the time. He conceives of it and says, this doesn't quite measure up. But he doesn't perceive it like the supreme Ishwar perceives it. So, in the same way that knowledge of the supreme remains with us, and that's the criteria by which we discriminate. This falls a little bit short. This is not perfect justice. This is not perfect love. This is not perfect harmony. This is not perfect. It's a little bit short. It approximates it. It comes close. And yet there's just a little bit of individuality left that says it's not perfect yet. That knowledge is in your soul. That knowledge is with you from birth to birth. In whatever body you take, you understand that this creation is an approximation. It's not a perfect representation. It's not the manifestation of perfect equality or perfect harmony, perfect justice, perfect love. It's the approximation. And we as sadhus strive for efficiency in our every action. So we try to achieve that state of perfection to the extent of our capabilities. That's our prayatma. This is our goal. This is our effort. This is our sadhana. And that's what distinguishes us as sadhus, 
We are seekers of efficiency, of perfection, of perfect clarity, of perfect surrender, of that 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 that, that perfect surrender of the jivatma into the paramatma. Perfect unity with God. Om Sam Saraswati Namaha. Namaste. Thank mm -hmm. you.